believers, if I were to ask you how you would respond to God, if he were to answer a prayer request the way you wanted him to, I'm sure that you would not have to think long and hard about what your response to him would be. Am I right? You're going you're to praise God, thanking him for answering your prayer, praising God for the wonderful God that he is, for the awesome work that he's doing in your life. You might also tell of his wonderful work to others and encourage believers to faithfully bring their request before him. You might also encourage non-believers to believe and trust in him. That, that might be your response. I, I hope it would be. But let me ask you this. What would your response to God be if he were to not answer your prayer the way you wanted him to? And that's a different question, right? Some of you know what your response should be from Scripture, but until you're put into that situation, it's difficult to know for sure how you would respond initially. If you have your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. We are finishing our series in Habakkuk today. And in this chapter, we learn from this prophet what our response should be in rough times when God does not respond to our request the way we would like for him to. We are going to examine Habakkuk's faithful response to the difficult will of God. Habakkuk chapter 3. Before we begin, let me give you one brief recap once again, one more time, in where we are in the book of Habakkuk before we finish today. Habakkuk was a prophet to the Jews in the southern kingdom before their fall. The kingdom was divided at this time. The northern kingdom fell first to the Assyrians and then the southern Jews fell next to the Babylonians. This is right before their fall. And in this book, the prophet is having a back and forth with God, a conversation with him. And at the beginning of the book, Habakkuk brings a complaint to God. He, he asks God why he is not dealing swiftly and justly with the sins of his people. Why is allowing them to live as if the law that God had given them had been paralyzed or as if there were no laws or there were no consequences to violating his law. So Habakkuk goes to God and he asks why. Why are you allowing for your people to continue in sin? He cries out to him. He says, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to put up with us? Why are you allowing us to continue in sin? Why are you not responding? Why are you standing idly by and looking on while your people continue in sin? Well, God responds to his prophet. And he basically tells them, I, I'm not going to delay for long. I, I'm going to judge my people and I'm going to use the wicked Babylonians as my instrument of judgment. Well, Habakkuk is more troubled with that response than he was initially with God not dealing swiftly and justly with the sins of his people. Habakkuk is confused at how a holy God who cannot look upon sin 
and associate with the wicked would use a nation more wicked than his own people as instruments of his righteous judgment. Well, in chapter 2, God responds once again. He comforts his prophet. He lets him know that the wicked Chaldeans will by no means escape his judgment. His hand of judgment will fall upon them without delay. And after his judgment comes, after it comes upon this violent, arrogant, faithless, idolatrous, and godless nation, God says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, in our text for this morning, we are going to witness the prophet Habakkuk respond to God's response once again to end. While God's hand of judgment is going to fall on the Chaldeans, don't forget that doesn't change the message that God has already spoken to his prophet about judgment first visiting his people Judah in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. Judgment is coming to Habakkuk's people by the hand of the Chaldeans in accordance with the divine plan of God. And the question we're going to have answered today from God's word is, how is his prophet going to respond to his difficult will? How is God's prophet going to respond to God's difficult will? This chapter is truly amazing. It's challenging, but it's, it's amazing passage of scripture. Let's look at it. Habakkuk chapter 3. Very unique chapter for a prophetic book. It reads like a psalm. It's a formal and public prayer from God's prophet meant to be read publicly. And according to Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 19, it's to be sung with musical instruments. Look at the first part of Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 1. We're told it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. Now, translators are not certain what that word Shigionoth means. Many believe it refers to a type of psalm. They believe this psalm is the type of psalm that Habakkuk gives us here, a Shigionoth psalm, possibly a psalm to music, a psalm of remembrance and hope. That's what this psalm is. Skip down to verse 19. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk 3 is a, a prayer from the prophet, a shigionoth, a certain type of psalm, a psalm of remembrance and hope that is to be sung with stringed instruments. And we're going we're gonna to break down this prayer this morning and we are going to see that Habakkuk does a couple of things for us in this chapter. One, he gives us a model prayer to follow. We have a few model prayers recorded for us in Scripture. So he gives us a, a, a model prayer to follow. In this chapter, we also have the ideal example, get this, of how we are to respond to God's plans when God does not work in accordance with our plans. Let me say that again. In this chapter we learn how we are to respond to God's plans when he does not work in accordance with our plans. Chapter breaks up nicely, like a prayer should. It has a petition from the prophet, 
a remembrance of God's faithful work and an expression of great faith from the prophet Habakkuk. Notice to begin Habakkuk's petition. Point number one, Habakkuk's petition for God's mercy. Habakkuk is going to begin this prayer by accepting God's difficult will and asking that, that God would work his will ultimately for the good of his people and for his own glory in accordance with this character, making a petition for God to be merciful. Look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. After going back and forth with God and asking difficult questions to God about his work in this situation, bringing judgment upon his people at the hands of, of their enemies, the Babylonians, and then thinking on the work that God's going to do, bringing his hand of judgment down on the Babylonians by their enemies, God's prophet thinks on this work, possibly in light of the work that God's been doing throughout history to this point, and he prays for God to work in this situation as he has willed and as he has in the past, ultimately for the good of his people and for his glory. Habakkuk says, I've heard the report of you. And your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. He's probably grown up with stories about God's great judgment. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues of Egypt, the earth swallowing up the sons of Korah, God sending fiery serpents to strike and kill rebellious people, possibly even God's judgment coming upon the Jews in the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians and thinking on these stories and in light of this coming judgment that God has promised, it, it strikes fear into the prophet Habakkuk and rightfully so. But notice in the latter half of verse 2, Habakkuk also knows that God's will, no matter how difficult, is redemptive. It's redemptive, he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And the New American Commentary on Habakkuk, when commenting on this passage, Arthur's Barker and Bailey say this. Look at this quote up on the screen. Based on the work of God in the past, the prophet called on God to renew his deeds in the present day. In a sense, Habakkuk meant for God to work a new redemption from the tyranny of Babylon as he had delivered Israel from the old tyranny of Egypt. He is praying for God to work his redemptive will. What a response by the prophet. Habakkuk knows terrible judgment is coming to him and his people. And notice here, he doesn't selfishly pray that God would act out of character and overlook the sins of his people and suspend judgment. He doesn't do that. He doesn't selfishly say, oh Lord, can't it just be the Chaldeans? Oh Lord, we're not as bad as they are. Can you just overlook what we've done? Can you weigh both of our sins and just punish them? No, Habakkuk does not make a personal petition for escape, but he prays for God to work in accordance with his unchanging character, in accordance with the permanent covenant he has made with his people, 
and in accordance with his sovereign will. Man, does Habakkuk know how to pray? He knows how to pray, doesn't he? He's not, he's not praying selfishly in accordance with his own will, but selflessly in accordance with God's will. He, he has received a definitive word that God is bringing judgment on his people and that it is deserved and that it must come. But he, but he also knows that his God is a God of mercy and grace who, while he punishes sin, provides rescue for the repentant. That's why he prays in wrath. Remember mercy. Again, Habakkuk knows wrath is coming and, and does not pray for God to remove it. He knows it's deserved. He knows it's promised. While that's the case, Habakkuk also knows that God's people will not be completely wiped out. As Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.12, we shall not die. He, of course, was right. God does remember mercy. There is a remnant that remains after this terrible judgment comes down upon his people at the hands of the Babylonians. He knows God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Therefore, he remembers mercy, and God does. Habakkuk here, with this opening prayer, is simply Praying in accordance with God's will, in accordance with the promises he has made, and in accordance with his character. He knows God's character. He knows about the fact that God cannot stand sin. He knows he is just. He knows God has to take care of matters when it comes to sin. He also knows that God works in accordance with mercy, that he works his difficult will for the good of his own people and for his own glory. And while Habakkuk understands that he might not even be able to see the fulfillment of God working in this way in his lifetime, he prays toward that end. That is faith. Habakkuk had one desire. That is for God's will to be done. His purposes to be fulfilled, no matter what that means for him and his people. He basically says this, God, I only care that you work in your perfect timing what you want because in the end, that's what's best. Well, I tell you, when you have arrived at that place spiritually, you have arrived spiritually when you can pray that. When you can look at the problems that you're facing in life and the problems in this world and say, Father, my concern is not about those things, but about you and your will being done. No matter what happens to me and those around me, I pray that you be glorified. What an amazing prayer that he prays. Habakkuk has one thing on his mind, and that was for, for God to work his will and receive the glory for it. Look at what John MacArthur says about Habakkuk's desires here. Look at this quote up on the screen. He says, His one desire was for things to be right in accordance with God's plan, not comfortable according to his desires. That's where our truth for the week comes. You'll find in your, in your study guide this week. Wow, right? Habakkuk's got it. That's faith. That's how the righteous are to live, Habakkuk 2.4. That's how Christ lived. 
In, in the Lord's Prayer, he modeled for us, he says that when we pray, we're to pray, Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And later Christ applied this in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to Calvary to die. He asked for the cup of God's wrath to pass from him, but he follows with, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's Habakkuk's prayer here. That's his concern. He had the right perspective. What mattered most to him was not the circumstances in his life and the circumstances in the world around him, although they were unbelievably bleak. The thing that concerned him the most was God's will being done. His concern was for things to be as God wanted them to be in the time he had appointed, knowing that was what was best. And again, Believers, we should get to the point where we're praying in this way as well. We're to be praying that God's will be done, no matter how that looks for us, no matter how that, that, what that means for us or what that costs us. We can and should also appeal to and, and cling to the promises God has made to us and appeal to his character as well while we are to embrace the fact that the God is a just God who hates sin and brings judgment we can and should also pray that God remember mercy what's keeping you from praying in this way? What's keeping you from praying in accordance with God's will? Is it personal concerns? Is it earthly comforts? Do you truly think that, that the way you've worked it out in your head is better? Are you more concerned with world events than you are spiritual matters? Are you more concerned with foreign powers than you are God's purposes being fulfilled his kingdom advancing the darkness of sin being pushed back by the light of his gospel and the victory of God's people if so pray today God would give you the perspective of his prophet Habakkuk pray that, that he would align your desires with his now let's move on to the remembrance section of the prayer Toward the end of verse 2, remember Habakkuk calls for God to remember mercy because he knows the work God has done for his people and the promises he has made in the past. So he takes a moment to share those things here. So that's point number two. Notice Habakkuk's remembrance of God's faithful work. And before we get into this, let me say this. Remembrance should take part in our prayers too. Our prayers should include remembrance as well. We, we don't often do that, but it's important that we do. When we're, when we're praying for matters, remember how God has worked in a similar situation throughout his word, throughout history, in our own personal histories. We need to do that. We need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and God's work in, in our lives and, and throughout history. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. 
This section of scripture is known as Habakkuk's Great Theophany. A theophany is just a fancy 25 cent term for the glorious vision of God. That's what the prophet provides us here. He's going to use a lot of figurative language that we're going to have to work through and let context help us understand it. But pretty much what Habakkuk's giving us here in this passage is just a glorious vision of who God is and the way he is at work in redemption throughout history and his judgment that has come as well in the way he has been present with God's people and lived in covenant with them. So he's just remembering these things. This is a glorious vision of God and the great work he has accomplished throughout the history of mankind. He's remembering God's great presence with his people after delivering them from Egyptian bondage. He is remembering when God entered into a covenant relationship with his people and the great and terrible judgment God poured out on his enemies. Notice the names Teman and Mount Paran. You know where that's located? Scripture tells us, we, we learn from uh, the context here that they were located near Sinai. Remember what happened at Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, God's presence is with his people. And God's man Moses received God's law given to his people. And he gives the law to God's people. And God entered into a covenant relationship with his people there. Here Habakkuk is remembering God's presence with his people and the covenant that he made with them. Remember that while Moses met with God at Sinai, the rest of God's people were gathered. But they're told not to get too close. They were to keep their distance. They were not to even touch the mountainside or they would die but Moses is allowed to approach he goes up on the mountain up into the cloud in the presence where 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 he is to commune with God and we are also told that as God's people were witnessing what was taking place with Moses on the mountain we're told they heard thunder from the heavens saw flashes of lightning and the sound of a trumpet and when they did they were terrified and understandably so right I believe that's what Habakkuk is remembering here when he says, look at it, verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Now we know there was trembling going on at the foot of Mount Sinai, but we know that when God enters into a covenant relationship with his people, there's also worship that takes place and of course later they're forgetful and unappreciative we won't go into that today okay but they were worshipful for a time look at verse 4 his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power in Exodus 34 we learn that Moses and God's people got a glimpse of God's glorious brightness but not in its entirety notice we're told that there God veiled his power Moses wanted to see God's glory but could only see the back side of it because experiencing God's glory in its fullness would have killed Moses we're told when Moses came down from meeting with God his face shone like the sun. It was so bright and disturbing for the people that they had Moses veil his face. The phrase rays 
flashed from his hand. Again, is speaking of God's glorious presence. Some commentators believe that, that Habakkuk is referring here to God giving his glorious law to Moses to give to his people and referring to this, this covenant that he made with them. The prophet also remembers here God's great and terrible wrath that he brought down upon the wicked nations set against his people and set against him. Look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Pestilence and plague here might be referring to the, the, the plagues that, that God poured out on the Egyptians, right? That, that God used to humble Pharaoh to force his hand to let God's people go. We learn throughout the Old Testament that God often brings judgment against the nations through natural disaster, through pestilence, and through plague. And one of the reasons he does this is for the purpose of getting attention, the attention of the nations, and drawing their gaze upward toward God. How many times does he say, I'm doing this that they may know the Lord? Remember in our passage from last week, God, through this great judgment, against this mighty nation. The Babylonians shows his presence on the earth in a great way. Look back at Habakkuk 2.14. I read it earlier. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord tells his prophet that after raising this nation up, he's going to bring this nation down, making his glory known throughout the earth. Look at Habakkuk 3, 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Habakkuk is speaking figuratively and descriptively again of God's great and terrible judgment that he brings down upon the nations of the earth. Nothing seems more permanent, right, than the mountains and the hills, right? Nothing seems more permanent than that, but the permanency of those things pale in comparison to the everlasting God. He alone is immovable when his hand of judgment falls. The most permanent and immovable structures and powers are no match. That goes for the Chaldeans and their mighty army. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushan was thought to be located in the west, Midian in the east. I believe the point is simply made here that no wicked nation from east or west is out of God's reach. And they tremble at the great and terrible judgment of the Lord. Notice also that while creation suffers at the hand of God's judgment, it's because of the wickedness of men that God's judgment comes. Look at verses 8 and 9. Habakkuk says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. Now notice here the warrior imagery he's about to use. You stripped the sheath from your bow, 
calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with the rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, also translated quaked and shuddered. In other words, the, the highest and mightiest of mountains, they tremble in the presence of holy God. The raging waters swept in. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. In that, God showed that he can raise the waters. Possibly in reference to the flood. Also, remember, he wiped out Pharaoh's army in the midst of the sea after parting it for his people. What he's showing here is that, that God can raise up waters against his enemies. Verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place, possibly a reference to Joshua 10 when God caused the sun to stand still and delivered his enemies into the hands of Joshua. At, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Now think about it. We've been talking about the fact that the Chaldeans were just marching through nations, throwing them down nation after nation. And while they're doing this, the prophet makes it known that it does not compare to what God's going to do when he brings judgment. And again, the judgment that God brings upon creation is not to punish creation, but to use it as weapons of his wrath against his enemies. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare, from thigh to neck, Selah. Notice Selahs, lots of Selahs being used. Y'all are familiar with that word, right? Heard it talked about. Though uh, they're not for sure, many commentators believe that this is just a dramatic pause here that was often included in the Psalms and in the prayers and in the songs so that God... God's people would reflect on what's being said. Habakkuk really wants his readers to consider God's great work in throwing down his enemies. The prophet is remembering God's great work of saving his people by crushing their enemies. This is something he has done. This is something he is doing. This is something he will do in the end. Notice in the passage I just read, the crushing of the head. That was a sign of complete and absolute Victory. It is what we're told Christ would do in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to Satan. It's a work he did at Calvary and a work he will do in the end. Verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. The Babylonians prayed on those weaker than them, the weak and the poor, and threw them down. But notice, they're going to be pierced with arrows through the head. Complete defeat at the hands of Almighty God. Verse 15, You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Nothing can stop Almighty God. What force is more powerful than the raging sea? few times do I feel more helpless than when I'm just sitting in the ocean when we go to the beach together just thinking the powerful waves of the sea could crush the mightiest of men and yet notice he says you trample the sea the surging of mighty 
waters. I'm reminded of that, that, that poem about the Lord, right? He moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. It's our God. Nothing can stop him. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So notice here the, the remembering of these mighty works of God. It strikes fear into Habakkuk. Here we see the humanness of God's prophet shining through while he's made it clear that he wants what God wants. He wants his will to be done no matter what, no matter what the cost. That doesn't mean that he's not scared to death about it. He is open and honest with God here that he trembles at the thought. His lips quiver at the sound. He's got a deep pit in his stomach. His stomach tosses and turns at the thought. Listen, while we should get to the point in our spiritual lives where we want what God wants no matter the cost, that doesn't mean at times it's not scary to think of what that might mean. doesn't mean that, that we won't struggle with feelings of, of fear the prophet does here. He's been there. It's real easy to oversimplify and trivialize our problems when we're not having any. Saying, no matter what, I'm going to trust the Lord. No fear, right? No problem with God. No God, no problem. But listen, when the storms of this life hit, it's hard. It's hard. When you are hit with devastating news, you're praying for certain outcomes, it's scary to think of the alternatives. The prophet understands that. How are we to respond when feelings of fear come flooding in on what might happen with God's response, the prophet shows us we're to place our faith in the Lord. Regardless, previous point, we're to want what God wants in the appointed time that he wants it, knowing that is what is best. Notice also that Habakkuk rests in the fact that God is going to faithfully keep his covenant with his people and he is going to bring an end to his enemies. He waits in faith for that great work. Look at the end of verse 16. Habakkuk says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk quietly waits for God's hand of judgment to fall on the Babylonians. He waits in faith knowing that day is to come and that comforts the prophet even though that he knows God's judgment will fall upon him and his people first. He shows fantastic faith in the midst of incredible difficulty. And that's our third and final point. Let's look at it quickly. We've looked at Habakkuk's acceptance of God's will, his petition for God's mercy, Habakkuk's remembrance of God's great and mighty and awesome works of judgment and deliverance, and lastly, notice Habakkuk's incredible faith in the God of salvation. Verses 17 through 19 is really the key passages in the book. Look at what Habakkuk says. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, 
The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Tremendous faith here. Habakkuk, with his feet firmly planted here, says, No matter what happens, I'll rejoice in the Lord. No matter what happens, I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. Get this. When faced with incredible problems, Habakkuk thinks on the incredible person and work of God, and he shows incredible faith. That's Habakkuk in a nutshell, right there. When faced with incredible problems, Habakkuk thinks on the incredible person and work of Almighty God, and he shows incredible faith. Judgment is certain. It's coming for God's people. What did that mean for Habakkuk? Loss of home, land, friends, family, his own life? Possibly. Was he fearful about it? Yes, but notice he's faithful. When faced with incredible problems, God's prophet Habakkuk shows incredible faith. He says, no matter what, I'm with you, God. He says, Lord, I don't care if all of creation goes crazy. I don't care if there's nothing right in the world. I'll rejoice because I'm right with you. I'm going to rely upon you for strength to stand. Notice the phrase, my feet like the deer. It's Habakkuk's way of poetically saying he has sure-footed confidence in God's providence. Do you? Do you have sure-footed confidence in God's providence? Habakkuk trusts that while his nation will be brought low because of God's judgment, he will tread in high places because he is right with the one true and living God who reigns supreme. Tremendous faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, this is completely foreign to me. Having this sort of confidence in the midst of despair, I don't get it. You want to have confidence like Habakkuk? You want to have the hope that this prophet has? You must first, get this, belong to the God of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's not strong in and of himself. There's nothing impressive about him alone. It's his God. God has made a way for him to have that hope. God has entered into a covenant with him and his people. That's the hope that he has. And get this, God has made a way for us to have that hope, believers, through the personal work of his son, Jesus. While we have sinned against God, we have turned away from him. We have set ourselves against him in sin. And while God is rightly set against us, and while we deserve his wrath for our sinfulness in God's wrath, he remembered mercy in that he sent his son Jesus to live, die, and rise again in our place so that we, through faith alone in Christ alone, could be rescued from sin and death. At Calvary, God's wrath was poured out on His Son so that we, through repentance and faith in Christ, might be rescued from God's wrath and restored to a right relationship with the living God. 
That's the gospel. That's good news. The question for you today that I want to leave you with is this. Are you trusting in Christ's person and work alone for your salvation, for your rescue? If not, I urge you this very hour, right here, right now, today, forsake your sin, bow your knee to King Jesus so that you can say alongside God's prophet to the one true God of all, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray together.